Our speaker today is one of our visiting faculty fellows, Emily McWilliams. And what more do I need to say? Intellectual humility and joy inquiry, question mark. Yeah, I added the question mark because really I'm not sure if humility is the right construct um, or not. So so this is a, this is a brand brand new topic for me. I started thinking about this um, exactly three weeks ago when you asked me what I was going to talk about today. And then two weeks ago, I officially committed to like thinking through some of this stuff out loud for the first time today. So um, so this is, it's very exploratory. Um, what I'm going to do is sort of walk through the different pieces of the topic that I've been thinking about and reading about for the past few weeks and um, try to highlight some of the connections that I see between them, but um, I, I don't yet have like a definitive argument about how all of this comes together. So I hope we can sort of explore this, this problem area together. Um, the, the very basic problem is um, sometimes when we are inquiring together, uh, it seems like we're not actually looking for the truth because there's other motivations, usually self-serving motivations that we have that get in the way of that. Um, and that causes all kinds of problems. So question, um, could there be, uh, should there be, might there be a conception of humility that will help us with that? Um, uh, could it be that cultivating humility as an intellectual virtue will help? Is that the right construct here? Um, so I'm trying to solve a particular set of problems and I'm wondering whether this is a way to do it. Um, to explain the sort of problem that um, I'm thinking about, I'm gonna start with this work by Michael Hannon and Jerome DeRitter on political beliefs. Um, this will give you sort of a flavor of the kinds of empirical phenomena that I'm thinking about, but I'll talk more about them later too. Um, there's been a lot of work by philosophers recently on political belief. Um, there's been empirically oriented work in this area for a long time, um, for much longer, but it, it feels like social epistemologists, particularly within Western analytic philosophy, have kind of picked up on this topic and run with it in the past um, decade or so. So I wanna highlight this work by Hannon and DeRitter in this uh, a recent paper they have called The Point of Political Belief, um, in which they try to think through what the, what the point of political belief is. Um, they point out at the beginning, it's commonly assumed by philosophers, not just assumed, but argued for that um, beliefs aim at truth, um, they understand this teleologically as saying that the, the functional goal of the relevant um, cognitive systems is the formation and the maintenance of true belief. Um, so if that's right, then false, false beliefs seem somehow defective qua belief. But uh, in the case of many um, political, moral, religious, and other sort of um, core beliefs, we evaluate evidence and form beliefs in these non-truth conducive ways. Um, motivated reasoning, identity protective cognition, confabulation, et cetera. Um, so none of, none of those empirical phenomena are, are new. None of them are um, groundbreaking news, but uh, taken together, they're thinking that um, what they mean is that from an empirical perspective, it seems false to say that the functional goal of the cognitive systems that form and maintain these beliefs is truth. Um, these, are, these are systematic, these are predictable aberrations from that. Um, okay, so how do we how do we make sense of that? What might it teach us about the point of political belief? Um, they give us three different models, um, and they're not aiming to decide between these three models. They they think that maybe all of them are um, real phenomena that explain different instances of political belief. So they're not competing. 
the first is that political beliefs are socially adaptive. Um, so Williams distinguishes ordinary world modeling beliefs, which do aim at truth, from socially adaptive beliefs, which, which aim at um, other social psychological goods like um, social bonding and other social benefits. Um, the idea is that the functional properties of those two kinds of beliefs are sufficiently different to warrant understanding them as two different kinds of cognitive attitudes. Um, and that they point out will allow us to say that in both cases, the mechanisms for belief formation are functioning properly. They're doing what, uh, what ancestral tokens of that type were selected to do, um, but they're different things. Uh, the second model is political, um, quote unquote, beliefs as expressive behavior. Um, so it's in quotes because they're thinking maybe these aren't really beliefs in the same sense that we ordinarily think of them. So what look like assertions of political belief are really just expressive, responding, or partisan cheerleading. Um, they are not the first people to say this. Um, this has been said by a handful of people. The, the idea is that some political beliefs are just ways of cheering and booing your team, the relevant political team. Um, there's a example that seems common in this literature from American politics um, in which a, a study was done in which a significant proportion of Trump voters um, were asked to compare a photo of Trump's inauguration in 2017 to a photo of Obama's inauguration in 2009. It's clear when you look at the two photos that the Obama inauguration has twice as many, you know, it's full, whereas the Trump one is half full. Um, it's clear that it has more people, um, but the Trump voters or a significant portion of the Trump voters still say the Trump photo, that inauguration had more people. Um, so the argument that they're making about that is that it would be a mistake to think that they really believe this when they say this photo has more people. Uh, it just can't be that they are saying that because they believe it. Instead, we should see that assertion as a kind of cheerleading. Um, they've chosen to express their support for Trump instead of answering the question factually. Um, so it seems like a factual disagreement. Actually, it's just cheering and booing that's happening. Um, all right, this, this is also supported by some other empirical studies that give people monetary incentives to answer questions correctly, which reduces the, the divergence significantly. Um, and it seems to do that by changing their motivation to, to go for the money. Um, why do people do this? Uh, one argument is that they get expressive utility from actions that convey these commitments. Um, so the, the argument here is that nothing that ordinary citizens do as you know a consumer, a voter, a participant in public discourse, nothing that we do is going to make a huge difference to political outcomes. Um, but given the role that our political beliefs play as signifiers in our social networks, um, expressing the wrong political belief could have dire sort of social consequences for you. So it's expressively rational to use your assertions um, to shore up your social world rather than to say what you think is true. Uh, okay, third model is political beliefs as in-between beliefs. Um, they're talking about cases where it doesn't seem accurate to describe people as believing or as not believing. So they're not deeply committed to their ideologies. They'll support whatever they think their party does and change their mind whenever their party does. Um, evidence of this comes from a study, um, well, a number of studies, but there's one in which participants are told about two different welfare programs, one that is very generous and one that is very frugal. And both, uh, in both cases, uh, they approve of whichever one they're told their parties approves of. 
uh, regardless of which that is. Um, the people might might take themselves to believe these things, but um, the thought that Hannon and Deritter have, and also Eric Schwitzgable has, is that we just we don't get a clear intuition about whether these count as full fledged belief. Um, so they deserve their own category. Okay. Um, those are three different models that describe the point of political belief. Um, again, they don't see them as competing. It might just be that certain beliefs fall into each of these categories. Uh, the important thing is that none of them seem to aim at truth. Um, this interests me because if beliefs do not always aim at truth, then neither does inquiry. Um, and I think that leads us to some interesting social epistemic problems. Um, so here's a, here's a set of questions I have. What are the consequences for cases of joint inquiry where we're purportedly cooperating to uncover truths about matters of common interests, but some participants are not aiming at truth? How might this lead to epistemic and moral harms and wrongs? Um, so for instance, <laughs> it might keep us from keep us from doing inquiry. It might keep us from exercising our capacities as an inquirer properly. Um, and then might certain dispositions to engage in ways that do not aim at truth constitute vices and what virtues might help inquiry go better is humility. One amongst them is humility, a helpful construct here. Um, so for, for background, one of the areas that I normally work in is epistemic injustice. Um, and in that literature, a lot has been said about how you can wrong someone specifically in their capacity as an epistemic agent. Um, by not taking them seriously as an inquirer, um, either because of prejudice or because of other factors that result from unjust distributions of social power. Um, so you wrong them when you don't take their contribution to inquiry seriously. Um, but my question here is what does that look like when you then layer on a context of joint inquiry in which some people aren't even trying to find the truth in the first place, it seems like. Um, then you've got people inquiring together across unjust divisions of social power. And it might be that they have different motivations that are pulling them in different directions. Um, some are not truth tracking. So what sort of harms and wrongs result? What sort of vices exist? What sort of virtues might we cultivate in order to avoid them? Okay, um, inquiry. So I've been using the term inquiry a bunch. Uh, what is that? Um, there are different definitions, but here's mine. Um, inquiry is an epistemic activity with epistemic ends. It aims at epistemic improvement with respect to a question or set of questions or with respect to understanding some phenomenon or phenomena. Um, you can read the footnote if you're curious about other people's definitions. Um, yeah, I, mine is just broader than some of the other views. I think it's better to be inclusive of epistemic ends that are not just knowledge and justified belief. Um, that's why I opt to go with epistemic improvement. Um, joint inquiry is inquiry that we do with others. So it's a social activity in addition to being an epistemic activity. Um, the things that we the things that we want and that we're seeking from social activities are often different from the things that we want from purely epistemic activities. Um, so our goals, which I think are often implicit, um, that we have when engaging in inquiry with other people are broader. Um, and there's a quote from Svensson, I, I hope that's how, how you pronounce it, that I think nicely expresses um, this. So the motives that we bring to social activities are often broader. When inquiring about issues that matter to us with others who matter to us, we may be, for example, be motivated by, he says, quote, will to express, perform, create, and recreate identities and their meanings. 
Um, I think that picks picks up too on some of the themes that we talked about with Hannon and De Ritter. Um, the important point here is that when inquiry is a social activity, we often have goals beyond the epistemic ones. Um, we're not just trying to figure out the truth, we're trying to um, both figure out and express ourselves. Uh, these are among the things that we do with other human beings um, as a bonding activity and as a way to better understand ourselves. And I think that complicates what joint inquiry is. Um, I, I doubt that what I've said is exhaustive of all goals and motives that people have, but it's meant to capture just this idea that we have a broader set of goals that we bring to inquiry as a social activity. Um, I will talk more systematically in section five about the kinds of goals that I think we have, but for now I just want to point that they're broader than the constitutive goals of inquiry. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the fundamental observation that got me started thinking about this a little bit ago. So things go wrong in inquiry because the purported goals of inquiry are narrower than the actual goals that are motivating us in inquiry. Um, and that I think that ties to the epistemic injustice literature because, as I said, things can get really sticky when we're inquiring together across unjust differences in social power and we have different goals. Um, if you are, you know, the less powerful participant in a conversation, there are cases where that might derail you and undermine your capacity to be an inquirer in ways that you just don't have the power to correct. Um, okay. And then my next thought is, well, maybe there's a certain conception of intellectual humility and the corresponding vices um, that can help us both shed light on that and help us think more productively about possibilities for amelioration, how to, how to make things better. Um, why I think humility is the right construct here. Um, one thing one thing to say is I'm not entirely sure whether it is, uh, but I do think there are some reasons to think it could be helpful. So um, the next part of this, uh, I will give an overview of some theories of humility and then give um, a more detailed summary, summary of um, Alessandra Panasini, I hope I'm saying her name okay, of her account, that's okay, um, which I think is particularly well-developed and particularly helpful for thinking about the role of motivation in inquiry. Um, for her, motivation is going to be the thing that distinguishes humility from other virtues. Um, okay, so first general rundown of some theories of humility. Um, in her work, she categorizes, the, she puts these into two broad families. Um, and just to, to flag, she's both she and I will, following her, go back and forth between saying humility and intellectual humility. Um, I don't think she sees the two as fundamentally different. It's just a limitation of the domain where it applies. So I'm kind of following her and thinking about it that way. All right, the first family is ignorance-based accounts um, and ignorance or lack of or lack of appropriate caring, lack of inappropriate caring. I wrote that weird. Uh, no, that's right. Ignorance or lack of inappropriate caring. To care too much would be inappropriate. Inappropriate caring about one's strengths. Um, she says this one might stem historically from Aquinas. Um, so those with more historical chops can weigh in on this. I'm not sure. Um, but some contemporary folks who give this account are Driver, who says humility is a disposition to underestimate self-worth and misjudge or be ignorant of one's own abilities or successes. Um, in the case of intellectual humility, it's just going to be your intellectual uh, successes or your epistemic successes. 
And then Garcia and Bomarito um, say it's a disposition not to dwell on, pay attention to, or take delight in your successes. Um, you might be aware of them, but you don't dwell on them and you don't pay too much attention to them. Um, so you might have accurate beliefs, unlike on the, uh, the drive review, but you ignore them anyway. Um, this one's not really based in ignorance, um, but she puts it in this category anyway, I guess because she's thinking the result's going to be the same either way. Either you don't know about your strengths or you just don't take delight in them. Either way, you don't take delight in them. Um, she identifies problems with these. First, it's implausible that intellectual virtue requires ignorance or the possession of false beliefs. Um, I guess that's just a conceptual point. Uh, the second one is that this kind of ignorance of your strengths or your lack of delight in your strengths uh, seems more self-abasing than humble. Um, so it's maybe the wrong concept. Uh, for my part, I'll say it's not clear to me whether these criticisms apply to the, the Garcia and Bomarito view as much as to the driver one, but she applies them to both. This is what she says. Um, okay, second family is accuracy-based accounts, um, on which humility is based not on a lack of acquaintance with or attention to your strengths, but on knowing your own weaknesses or limitations. Um, so Snow says possess it's possessing an accurate assessment of your limitations. Um, Hazlitt says it's proper assessment of the epistemic status of your first order beliefs. And then similarly, Church says it's tracking accurately what you justifiably take to be the epistemic status of your beliefs. And then um, Whitcomb, who has a number of co-authors on this, um, says that it consistent, consists in owning your limitations. Um, this sort of fitted in with the category of accuracy-based accounts insofar as owning means not being in denial about their existence, um, though it's not totally clear whether that's what they, they mean by it, but that's why she puts it there. Um, she also identifies problems with this family of views. So first, it seems like awareness of limitations is not actually necessary for humility. Um, you might have bad evidence. Uh, you might just be bad at tracking your limitations. And she thinks you might nonetheless count as humble because what really matters is owning up to the limitations that you think you have. Um, so acceptance should not be uh, construed as tracking your limitations accurately for her. Um, it's also not sufficient, she thinks. Uh, one might be aware of their limitations and use that information to cover them up, which would not be a very humble thing to do. Um, okay, so that those are the two families of views that she sees. Um, I'm gonna add two more because I think there, I think there are two more. Um, the first is inattentive accounts on which um, one does not think too much about themselves or is not centered on themselves. Um, she she doesn't talk about this family of views. I'm taking the name for it by a, from a paper by Brian Robertson in which he traces this historically to Sidgwick and then C.S. Lewis. Um, and then there's a bunch more sort of contemporary supporters. Um, interestingly, in that paper, Robinson also puts Garcia here, who Tanasini had classified as ignorance-based. Um, so I'm thinking that perhaps why the reason she's not thinking of this as a separate family is that she thinks it's a kind of ignorance-based account, um, but I'm not I'm not sure that's right. Um, I think ignorance and inattentiveness are just two different things. Um, and as I mentioned before, I don't think the same criticisms apply to both. Okay, so I wanna separate them. Um, and then finally, a fourth category that I wanna add to the list is sort of the flip side of inattention to yourself, which is attention appropriate attention to others. Um, 
something relational. So, so in the case of humility in general, this might just be attention and respect for others' agential needs or for others' agency. Um, because we're talking about intellectual or epistemic humility, the focus is gonna be on their intellectual or epistemic needs. Um, as far as I know, and I'm still, there's a lot of literature on humility. I'm still working my way through it. There's nobody who says exactly this, but there's a bunch of people who say things somewhere in this vicinity. Um, and this, this is one of the elements that I think ought to end up in a complete account of humility in joint inquiry, because joint inquiry is relational. Um, so I'll, I'll return to that point at the end. But the, the folks who say things in this vicinity are priests who says that it's an interpersonal virtue that consists in treating others with respect as epistemic agents. Um, oh gosh, Nadelhofer, Nadelhofer, and writes it, it combines a low self-focus, um, so similar to the inattentive accounts with a high devotion to or focus on other people. And then Dalmia or Dalmaya um, characterizes what she calls historicized relational humility as a liberatory virtue, which combines awareness of our limitations with a disposition to embrace others as partners in cognitive activity. Um, I like her, I like her focus on the epistemic agency of others. Um, and I think it, it comes partly out of care ethics. And I think that nicely highlights the idea that um, if we're looking for virtues that are going to make joint inquiry go well, they should have, they should have a relational element to them. Um, okay, so that's a very quick and dirty summary of some existing views of humility in general um, and intellectual humility in particular. I don't think it's exhaustive. Uh, please feel free to point me to others that you think might be might be helpful for solving the kind of problems I have in mind. Um, the view I'm going to go over now in a little bit more depth is Alessandra Tanasini's, which I, um, for those of you who read her paper for today, thank you. I know it's a lot. Um, it's very dense and nuanced. Um, what I like and what I think is so important is that it attends carefully to the role of motivation and particularly to motivations that might not be part of your conscious awareness. Um, so she calls it a motivationalist account. Um, and I think I think that's helpful because the problems I'm describing have centrally to do with our motivations and inquiry. Okay. Um, so she points out the view that intellectual character vices have motivational components is a minority view, and there are folks who argue explicitly against it, who think that you know it's perfectly possible for vicious individuals' motivations to be just unimpeachable. Um, that debate over whether motives are going to be required for virtue goes along with the debate uh, between reliabilism and responsibilism about virtues. Um, for responsibilists in general, having good motives is part of what makes the virtue valuable. For reliabilists, that's not necessarily the case. Um, I'm not going to talk more about that, but um, uh, that's where it comes from. And I'll say that I think motivation is important. So that's one of the things that has drawn me to her view. Okay, here's her basic definition, uh, which is on the handout. Intellectual humility is, quote, a virtue based on stable attitudes directed toward aspects of one's cognitive agency and its components that serve the knowledge and value expressive functions. Um, these attitudes toward our cognitive agency cause behavioral and affective or emotional dispositions that are characteristic of intellectual humility. Okay, so the definition um, 
is a bit dense and it's drawing on work and social psychology. So let me say more about what um, these two key terms, attitudes and attitude functions are. Um, attitudes are, as she puts it, the central construct in social psychology. Um, they are not propositional attitudes. So for, for philosophers, that can be a, a hard thing to get over. Um, it confused me when I, when I first started reading this. So take that out of your mind. They have nothing to do with propositions. Um, instead, they are um, summary evaluations or appraisals of the objects that are their targets. They are akin to likes and dislikes. Uh, more technically, they are associations um, between one or more valences, so positive or negative affects or valences, and the representation of the object that is their target. Um, so the representation of a target object triggers the affect. Um, the example she gives, which I think makes this really intuitive, is that she has a negative attitude towards licorice. So any thought of it or any encounter with it triggers these strong negative feelings, strong negative affect. And she traces this as probably having eaten it when she was ill as a child. Um, so in that example, her associative state pairs a representation of licorice, um, which is the target object with a negative affect or valence um, and thereby appraises the object licorice negatively. Okay, so I think it's I, I think the concept itself is fairly intuitive. Um, what do these attitudes do? Um, they guide attention, categorization, and information processing, and are thus predictive of behavior in a range of circumstances. Uh, why do we have them in the first place? Um, likely, uh, the going view is because they function as cognitive shortcuts. Um, they save us the trouble of having to figure out what to think. Um, each time we encounter an object. So we don't have to engage in deliberate reflection, um, which would cost us time and energy. Um, and they can always change. When we get novel information and have novel experiences with an object, that can prompt a reevaluation, but we don't have to do it by default. Um, I should also mention that the objects of attitudes do not need to be physical objects. Um, for her account, the, the relevant attitudes are going to be towards your cognitive agency and elements of your cognitive agency, which are um, obviously not physical. Okay, so that's a very quick summary of attitudes. The other key aspect of them that you need to understand in order to understand her definition is functions, so attitude functions. Um, the theory in social psych is that attitudes are acquired, revised, and maintained to satisfy human needs, and those needs are their functions. Um, to put it another way, functions are the needs that attitudes contribute to satisfying or the motives that are instrumental in their formation and maintenance. Um, this, this has been, this I think work in social psych started in the late 50s or early 60s, so it's been around for a long time. So there's a bunch of different taxonomies of attitude functions and there are disagreements about um, how many functions there are and how we should categorize them. Um, but there are four kinds that are going to play uh, an important role in her account of humility and they're all pretty well supported empirically, these four. Um, so I've listed them here. They are uh, first the knowledge function, so attitudes that serve the knowledge function are formed and revised to satisfy the need to make sense of the world. Um, their formation and revision is guided by uh, a person's motivation to have an accurate account of the target. Um, that, of course, is characteristically epistemic, right? 
Um, the second, value expressive attitudes are formed to serve the need to define oneself by expressing one's central values and self-concept. Um, and she points out here that the object itself doesn't need to be a value. So she gives an example where she has a positive attitude towards her hiking boots. Um, they facilitate the promotion of values like uh, freedom and autonomy and awe and um, her positive attitude satisfies the need to give expression to that set of values, even though that's not the object. Um, third is ego defensive attitudes, which evaluate objects for their capacity to pose a threat to the self and protect oneself from internal conflict. Um, so these are sort of a heuristic for answering the question, um, is this object somehow a threat to how I see myself? Um, they function to protect self-esteem and self-image. And then finally, fourth, social adjustive attitudes appraise objects in relation to their role in promoting or inhibiting social acceptance. Um, so she gives the example of teenagers having positive attitudes toward like the latest model of iPhone um, because that helps them be part of the in-group. So um, in general here, you would you know adjust your attitudes to those of your group or project having the attitudes of those of your group. Um, unless you're in a social setting where being a contrarian is the thing that gets you social acceptance, which you might worry is the philosophy classroom. I worry about that sometimes. Um, okay, so those are the four functions. Um, putting that together, um, we now sort of have all the pieces we need to understand her theory. Um, on that theory, humility is based on attitudes toward the subject's own cognitive agency and its components. Um, so the objects of the attitudes are either your cognitive agency as a whole or um, particular components of it, like uh, skills or cognitive habits that you have. Um, she argues that since cognitive features are successes only when they help us get an accurate view of the world, to have a positive attitude toward them is to assess them as epistemic successes and to have negative attitude toward them is to assess them as epistemic limitations. But um, individual, individuals' patterns of evaluation of their cognitive features depend not just on whether they actually promote success, but on the functions served by those evaluations, um, on the functions of those attitudes. Okay, so um, for instance, um, I might have an ego defensive motivation that causes me to maintain a positive attitude towards my abilities to do formal logic. I don't think this is true. I don't think I'm really that great at formal logic. Um, but it might be that that's an important part of how I see myself as a philosopher. Um, so it's important for my self-esteem that I evaluate this component of my cognitive agency positively. Um, that in turn causes me to lower the bar for what I consider sufficient evidence that I'm actually good at it. Um, it means that I'm called that I'm disposed to call to mind instances in which my ability served me well and not to call to mind instances in which my ability did not serve me well. Um, and to think of that as being sufficient evidence because um, the need that my positive attitude is really serving isn't about whether it's true. Um, it's about maintaining my self-esteem. Okay. Um, so for her, she says, humble individuals have attitudes toward their cognitive agencies and their components that serve knowledge and value expressive functions. And then folks who suffer from the opposing vices have attitudes towards their cognitive agency that serve ego defensive and social adjustive functions, like, like the example that I just gave. 
Um, so for the knowledge function, um, intellectually humble individuals have positive attitudes towards those aspects of their cognitive agency that have promoted the acquisition of epistemic goods and negative attitudes towards those that have led them away from epistemic goods or inhibited their, their knowledge or understanding. Um, and then she says those attitudes are also value expressive because they express a deeply held commitment to epistemic goods. Um, so in summary, this is a quote from the handout. In summary, the attitudes of the person who is intellectually humble are formed to express a commitment to epistemic goods and are formed as a result of past experiences driven by the need for knowledge and understanding. Okay. Um, and then in the individuals who suffer from the vices that oppose this, um, she says about their attitudes, um, she says these evaluations toward the self for its epistemic worth are character flaws, not primarily because they are themselves false or inaccurate, but because they're guided by motivations that are irrelevant to epistemic assessments. Um, I, have, I, I made a little diagram for those of you who are visual thinkers. Um, of the role that attitudes play in this. I, I, you know, use it if it's helpful, ignore it if it's not. Um, so intellectual humility is based on attitudes serving knowledge and value expressive functions. What does that lead to? Um, what does it lead to in terms of dispositions to behave and feel certain ways in relevant circumstances? Um, she says attitudes that serve these functions lead to dispositions to be modest about our intellectual strengths and accepting of our intellectual shortcomings. So behaviorally, um, it is a dispositional profile that's a combination of these two components. Um, on the modesty component, if your attitudes toward your cognitive makeup are driven by a concern for accuracy, you're going to be disposed to be realistic about your abilities, right? Your assessment of your strengths is driven by a love for truth or a, a need for truth. Um, and then on the acceptance component, also, if you're driven by a concern for accuracy, it makes sense to be open about your weaknesses. Um, it makes sense to acknowledge your mistakes and to accept criticisms from others without resentment. Um, all of that is in turn going to help you stay on track when you're doing inquiry. Um, it's not going to guarantee that you're completely correct about all your strengths and weaknesses, so she's not a reliabilist, um, but it's going to make it more likely uh, because you're motivated to assess them accurately and you're motivated to draw on them in inquiry only when and to the extent that it's actually going to help you get to the truth. Um, so in my example, I'm not going to insist on using my logic chops because um, it would be a threat to my self-esteem to consider that I might not be good at it, but I'm going to assist, uh, rather I'm going to accept that shortcoming about myself and I'm going to not draw on it when I'm doing inquiry with others. Um, maybe I'm gonna try and um, build up my logic chop so that it's uh, more accurate in the future, th those sorts of things. Okay, and then the, the other picture that I have in this section of the handout is just cut and pasted from her book. Um, so it's a diagram of her characterization of the two, these two components of humility and their opposing vices. Um, she characterizes each of those vices that are opposed to humility as defective self-appraisal. So vices of um, superiority on the left and vices of inferiority on the right. Um, okay, that, that's my summary of her view. As I say, it's it's dense and complex, it's, it's nuanced. Um, the things that I like about it, um, I, I'm not going to 
agree or disagree with it sort of whole hog today. The things that I like about it are that it gives a central role to motivation, as I've been saying. Um, uh, I like that it understands self-regulation and inquiry as based at least partly on something that's affective. Um, I think there can be a tendency amongst philosophers to over-intellectualize by going doxastic instead of effective. Um, and I like the idea that humble individuals are motivated by truth um, and that those suffering from vices opposed to humility um, are putting other self-serving social psychological needs ahead of getting to the truth. Um, I think that I think all of that sheds light on the kind of questions I'm interested in about what can go wrong when we bring different motivations with us to inquiry and why. Um, whether or not all of the details of the, the view are right is something I'm still thinking about and would love you to help me think through. Um, the next section um, is going to raise a disagreement that I think I have with her over the question of whether vice and the, the vices opposing intellectual humility in particular um, cause people to be irrational. Um, I think she thinks they do. Uh, and that's gonna give me an opportunity to go into more detail about some of my own thoughts on the motivations that we bring with us to inquiry. Okay. Um, all right, so rationality and joint inquiry. Um, so she says that in the case of beliefs and behaviors that stem from vice, the true motives, which again are vicious, um, at the root of beliefs and behaviors undermine the rationality of those beliefs or behaviors by the agent's own lights. Um, I, I agree with that so far as it goes, um, but rationality, of course, is relative to ends. So behaviors can be rational as a means to one end and not another. Um, so essentially, I agree with her that um, vicious motives would undermine the rationality of beliefs and behaviors by the agent's own lights. Um, but I disagree if what she's saying here is that vice causes people to be irrational full stop. Um, and at, at some parts in her writing, it seems like that is what she's saying. Um, rather, I think vice undermines the rationality of one's behaviors by one's own life because there's a mismatch between the purported ends that people think they are aiming at or that they would be willing to say that they are aiming at um, by their own lights, the, the ends of inquiry, and then the ones that they're actually aiming at. Um, so in cases of joint inquiry with vicious inquirers in the mix, there are multiple motives and ends in play. There's on the one hand, the purported ends. Um, so by their own lights, folks are engaged in joint inquiry, which aim, aims at epistemic improvement. But then on the other hand, there's their true ends, um, underlying ends or motive. Um, if the motive, which might be unconscious, is something like eco-defense, then the behavior is aiming at an end they actually have, you know, if you think motives are ends, um, even if they're not aware of it and wouldn't be prepared to endorse it. So if we think of attitude functions as motivations, um, then I don't think vicious motives undermine the rationality of behaviors full stop. Um, to be fair, I'm not sure whether she is saying they do either, but it, it seems like it in certain places. Um, she, she says in certain places that vice biases individuals' self-evaluation such that they then fail to appreciate the best means to their ends um, and therefore act irrationally. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they just have other ends uh, that aren't acknowledged. Okay. 
Um, to make this point a little sharper, I'm going to recruit one more distinction from psychology. Um, so in work on attitude functions, um, Herrick suggests a distinction between two different families of attitude functions, um, evaluative and expressive. Evaluative functions summarize information about the object and direct uh, utility, its direct utility for the person. So that one's kind of the traditional definition of attitudes that was given you know, in the 60s. Um, they exist as heuristics or shortcuts to summarize information that's relevant to the evaluation of an object. Uh, but then the second family is expressive functions, um, which underlie what he calls symbolic attitudes. Um, this takes us a little bit back to Hannon and DeRitter where we started. Um, in these cases, people use their attitudes as tools or symbols in their interactions. Um, and here he includes value expressive, social adjustive, and ego-defensive attitudes. So the, the needs they serve are broadly related to um, affirmation of your identity, enhancement of your self-esteem, um, strengthening of your relations to in-group, and distancing of your relations from an out-group. Um, I think that helps clarify the sense in which beliefs and behaviors stemming from vicious motives are rational, um, in that uh, contributions to contributions to inquiry that stem from vice are not epistemically rational, right? They're not helping us get epistemic goods. They're not serving the constitutive ends of inquiry, but they're expressively rational. The person is gaining expressive utility from expressing those attitudes, and that's what explains they're making those contributions. Um, and that screws things up for joint inquirers uh, because the purported ends of inquiry are different from the actual ends that the individuals have that are not acknowledged um, and perhaps not consciously available either. Um, okay, now returning briefly to that Svensson quote from section two. I don't know what that means. I'm ignore it. Um, <laughs> he said that when inquiry when an inquiry, um, we are motivated not just by its constitutive ends, but as he put it, by a will to express, perform, create, and recreate identities and their meanings. Um, that was part of the motivational profile, again, that we bring to the table. So given that, and given everything that we've said so far about the um, empirical stuff, I think there are three basic categories of motives or goals that we bring to the table. So now we're on the last page of the handout. Um, these three categories are, are, are my own suggestion. Um, so you, uh, I'll be curious what you think. The first one is expressive motivation. So I'm just taking this from Herrick. Um, and again, it can include value expressive, social adjustive and ego defensive motivations. Maybe there's other kinds too. Um, these are not epistemic. We're not trying to figure anything out. We're just trying to express or perform something. Um, the behaviors that result from them are signaling behaviors. Um, the thing we want is to express them and perhaps to get uptake from our interlocutors for, for them. We want validation for whatever expressive act we're doing, um, or we want to be seen as doing it, presumably. Uh, the second one is the basically the constitutive ends of inquiry, so inquiry-relevant epistemic motivations, um, epistemic improvement. These are the ends, the actual ends that we sign on to either implicitly or explicitly when we engage in joint inquiry. Um, they're the ends that we have agreed to aim at together and they are constitutive of inquiry. And then the third one is self-regarding epistemic motivations. Um, so this I'm taking a, a bit from that quote. Um, 
I think there's a third category that is different from signaling or expressing and that it's epistemic, but it's aiming at personal epistemic goals rather than the shared goal that we've signed on to. Um, it's epistemic in the sense that we are trying to figure something out, but the thing that we're trying to figure out or understand is ourselves um, rather than whatever the topic of inquiry is. And I think we often try to figure ourselves out in part by figuring out how we feel about things, how we feel about the topic of discussion. Um, that's not just about the topic itself and what's true about the topic, but about uh, who we are or how we want to understand ourselves in relation to it and the other people we're talking to. Um, there might even be sort of like a reflective equilibrium of sorts between trying to understand the topic and then trying to understand yourself and how you want to see yourself and how you want others to see you. Um, I'm not sure. That's sort of empirical speculation. Um, but I think there's something like this, and I think it's not rare. Um, I suspect it's happening in a lot of conversations that um, are about things that matter to us, whether they are, uh, you know, not just political, but moral, religious, any other topics that sort of maybe intersect with social identities that are strong for us. Um, I'm not sure whether this is something that's been looked at empirically or whether it could be. If, if you are aware of such work, please let me know. Okay. Um, when this is someone's motivation, um, they can make a contribution to joint inquiry that looks epistemically irrational because it looks to be taking us away from the truth with respect to the topic. Um, but that's not the contribution's underlying aim. The person is trying to figure out how they want to see themselves or how they want to be seen by others in some important respect. So in that sense, it is epistemically rational. So there it gets even more complicated. Uh, I think there's probably also mixed cases where um, we're doing more than one of these things. Maybe there's also in-between cases where there's not a fact of the matter about which of these things we're doing. I'm not sure. Um, uh, and this causes problems when individuals aim at one and three, it can derail two, which is the purported shared goal. Um, okay, so I was torn about whether to try and give a real life example here and decided not to because it would involve speculating about people's psychologies and motivations, which is dangerous and sort of unfair. Um, so let me just give a hypothetical one. So suppose you've got two people talking about some recent political event um, and they're inquiring together about whether they think it's going to have an effect on an upcoming election. So that's the question. Um, that's the thing they're trying to get epistemic improvement on. Uh, one of these people is deeply invested in thinking of themselves as politically engaged and as a skilled political analyst, right? That's part, that's a core aspect of their identity. Um, so they feel perhaps unconsciously, but nonetheless, they feel that if they don't have something insightful or unique to say about this question, or if the other people in the conversation don't recognize them as saying something insightful or unique, that's going to feel like a threat to this core aspect of their identity. Um, so their motivation maybe is like a combination of ego defensive and value expressive. Um, so to show that they have a unique and thoughtful, thoughtful perspective, they say something um, they say, you know, well, I think what most people are not appreciating about this recent political event is X, Y, Z. Um, it doesn't matter what X, Y, Z is. What matters is that it's serving their expressive needs because X, Y, Z is something that's not surface level, right? Um, it's something that takes some political analysis to get to. Um, 
But they've also straightforwardly made an assertion, which in the context of joint inquiry, you would read as aiming at two, right? As aiming at improvement on the purported question. So given that, now suppose you're the other person in the conversation um, in response to their assertion, you think about X, Y, Z for a couple of minutes. Um, it's interesting, it's sophisticated, but you judge that nonetheless, it's ultimately false. And so it takes us away from the shared goal of joint inquiry which is to better understand whether this event is likely to have an effect on the upcoming election. So you flag this, you say, I don't think XYZ is correct. Um, if you do that, that might bring you closer to the constitutive goal of joint inquiry, uh, which is what you intend it to do because, um, because you take yourself to be inquiring. But insofar as the other person's goal was expressive or was something else, they may well take it as a denial of uptake for that expressive move and thus you know, a repudiation and a threat um, to the way that they see themselves and the way that you see them uh, rather than you know, this helpful um, move in your purported shared enterprise. Uh, that's the thing that can happen. I don't think it necessarily happens at um, a conscious level but I think it happens in a lot of conversations. Um, and that's why a concept of attitudes as affective evaluations is helpful. Um, because I think the person just, in a lot of cases, is just going to feel negative affect. They're going to feel the sting of rejection, right? Rather than the positive affect they would feel if the underlying goal was epistemic. Um, and they were receiving your contribution not as uh, a denial of their identity, but as an opportunity to re-examine this thesis and move towards the truth. Um, okay. Uh, I'm almost done now. I'm just going to go through the last two very short sections. Um, I think it should by now be clear that this can lead to epistemic harms and wrongs. If you've got an interlocutor who's aiming at one or three, it can subvert your ability to use your epistemic agency in the in the conversation. Um, and insofar as you don't have mutual clarity about what's happening, it can also cover up the fact that this is what it's doing. So I think you know, there can be plausible deniability that makes it look like we really are aiming at two, um, even though individuals are aiming at one or three. To think about how this actually plays out, though, I think we need to add one more layer that I haven't given a lot of attention to so far, um, which is the fact that as a regular feature of our social epistemic lives, we are engaging in joint inquiry across unjust differences in social power. Um, I understand social power as a socially situated capacity to control others' actions. Um, that is a general definition. It can be exercised by particular people or it can be purely structural. Um, and it can happen without people knowing it. So, it, you know, it can be hard to speak truth to power, even if the powerful individuals are not aware of or responsible for the stifling effect that they are having on a conversation just by virtue of their social position. Um, if the more power, powerful inquirer's goal is one or three, it can be difficult or risky for the less powerful inquirer to refuse having their epistemic agency subverted or hijacked to serve that goal. So even if, you know, you are very clever and you recognize what's happening, you might not have the standing to refuse to participate or to insist on aiming at two instead. So I think your agency is being subverted or hijacked to serve a different goal than the one you signed on to. Um, and I think that's maybe a unique kind of epistemic harm that hasn't been looked at in the uh, literature on epistemic injustice. Okay, final question. Um, could cultivating intellectual humility help? Um, 
It's a question I genuinely have. Is this the right construct here? Um, Tanasini thinks it can help because it involves having the right motives. Uh, even putting her aside, I think there are other reasons to think it can help. If we look back at my original taxonomy of accounts of humility, um, I think the last two, the, the three and four now look particularly relevant here. So those were the, the inattentive account on which we don't think too much about ourselves and the relational account on which we attend also to other people's epistemic needs and interests, perhaps out of a care for them as epistemic agents. Um, those are fit on those accounts. Humility is the kind of thing that would steer us away from situations in which our self-regarding motives swamp the constitutive ends of inquiry. Um, so there are these existing, you know, schools of philosophical thought on which humility seems well suited to help us solve this problem or this family of problems. Um, I think the fourth one in particular might be well suited because it's relational, and again because joint inquiry is relational. Um, there are, um, these are, numbers three and four are of course different from Tanasini's account. So I wonder if there's some kind of combination of these things that might be helpful here, or whether that's just trying to put too many things into the humility bucket when really, you know, they, they ought to be understood as separate. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll stop here. I, um, one final thought. So I've given, I've given you a bunch of different puzzle pieces, and I hope you'll indulge me in exploring with me how to put them together. Um, the thought I will leave you with is that I do think that in looking at the context of joint inquiry and recognizing that we're all trying to satisfy these different social psychological needs, there is reason to develop a specifically relational account, which is something that hasn't always been done in the literature on humility. Um, it might not be the same as the kind of humility that makes inquiry go well when you're doing it by yourself, because it's going to be partly what you owe to other people as fellow inquirers, vis-a-vis um, -vis the constitutive ends of inquiry that you have signed on to together. Um, there's something about recognizing that joint project and then taking care of one another's epistemic needs and interests vis-a-vis -vis that project, rather than focusing too much on yourself. Um, so that seems to me like a reason to think that humility is a helpful concept here and that we should develop a specifically relational concept of humility to help with this. Okay, I will stop now. I will really stop.